Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. I hope you all enjoyed our Q&A episode last week. It was a lot of fun to record. Now that we're back into regular episodes, though, I want to take a break from the lives and issues of the royals and take a look at some of the stories from more ordinary people that Gregory shares with us. Let's try to get a sense, as best we can from our limited source, of what life was like for people in the period in episode 51, Justice for the Common People. Gregory's histories are full of stories of strange incidents and gossip about the personal lives of various people, mostly from in and around Tours. They are of varying interest. Some are rambly and talk about people who we've never heard of before and never hear from again. Some are short and talk about people or situations about which Gregory seems to assume we should already have significant context, which has obviously been lost to time. Some, however, are very interesting. See, Gregory is not just a historian of major events. He mixes them in throughout a sea of personal stories and local gossip. For Gregory, these incidents reflect his everyday life, and including them in his work was just natural. For us, they form an invaluable pool of social data on his society. This is another way in which his work differs massively from the chronicles that will follow him. They record only the big events and matters from the very top echelon of society, the royals and most important nobles. Gregory's preoccupation with these stories about ordinary lives and common situations in and around his city give us a limited but important insight that is crucial for social historians who want to understand the lives of people at the time, not just those of the kings. For our journey into the ordinary, let's start with a story about the supernatural. I've talked before about Gregory's belief that God not only judged people after their death, but that he actively acted upon the world to punish the wicked and reward the righteous while they were alive as well. But, unfortunately, the inverse of this is true as well. To Gregory, and many others at the time, The devil stalked the world, causing pain and mischief wherever he went. It was the duty of bishops and other men of the church to not only inform and ensure the piety of their flock, but also to defend them against the evil forces coming up from hell itself. Now, anyone who's heard the name Salem before can tell you that the forces of evil do seem to have a bit of a gender bias. So of course the story Gregory tells us is one of a woman consorting with the devil. Now this is an interesting story for a couple of reasons. And the first is the way that Gregory lays it out. A slave woman at the time was discovered to have the power of prophecy. She used her power to help her masters, who then set her free in thanks. Gregory then states, quote, If anyone had been the victim of a robbery or any other disaster, she would immediately announce where the thief had fled, to whom he had handed over his ill-gotten gains, or what else he had done with them. Now, you and I might be saying at this point, wow, what a helpful magical woman. She's solving crimes around Merovingian Gaul with her precognition? I'd watch that show. 
But of course, Killjoy Gregory does not think the same way. He notes that she, quote, acquired more and more gold and silver, end quote. From where? Well, reasonable question, but Gregory doesn't actually state this clearly. From context, it seems fairly clear that she's getting paid by grateful folk who she's helped, but that doesn't matter to Gregory. See, she may not be causing direct harm, but she is still dangerous. Why? Well, he says that, quote, she would walk about so loaded with jewellery that she was looked upon by the common people as a sort of goddess, end quote. The main point of Gregory telling us these details is to establish her main sins, pride and greed. But the underlying point is that she is misleading the people and challenging the authority of the church. Remember, Gaul was far from fully converted to Christianity at this point. Especially in the countryside, traditional beliefs persisted often existing alongside Christianity. The woman interacts later with the Bishop of Verdun, meaning she must be somewhere near the city. Verdun is pretty far to the northeast, closer to the traditional lands of the Franks, and farther from the urban centres of Gaul. Part of the Bishop's job in areas like this was conversion, and the stamping out of traditional beliefs that might conflict with the church's message. A magic woman, independent of the church hierarchy, doing miracles? That's a conflict. So, she gets arrested by the bishop Agaric of Verdun. And he, quote, realized that she was possessed by an unclean spirit which had the gift of prophecy. When Agaric had pronounced over her the prayer of exorcism and had anointed her head with holy oil, the devil cried out and revealed his identity to the bishop, end quote. Now this is where I'd like to note the second interesting thing about the story. See, wise women, as they were often called, formed a pretty important part of society at this point. These were basically women who had some knowledge of medicine, and sometimes some supernatural abilities, but used them to help their communities. In a world without doctors, and especially outside of the cities where scholarship was somewhat lacking, the generational knowledge of these women was highly respected. But they existed outside of the church, and their authority in their communities limited the dominance of the church in these areas. The church had a twofold approach to this problem. The first is demonstrated in the story. Arrest the woman, discredit her, then remove her from her community, and teach them that the church always has the answers. Gregory notes that Agaric failed to exorcise the devil, but it didn't really matter because he had done his job in discrediting her power and thus her authority. Gregory notes that she fled to Fredegund, because why not throw a jab at her in this completely unrelated story? The other way the church dealt with this issue was to co-opt the image of the wise woman. Gaul had an unusual number of female saints in this period, and many had elements of this wise woman image recorded in their hagiographies. Because they were saints, and their allegiance was always to Christ first, 
they were able to do these things and not be tarnished with the negative associations that the church had built around them. Simply, they were not a threat to the church hierarchy, so they were allowed to do these things. Radegund herself displays this image in her hagiography, personally caring for the sick. But other female saints show even more of these traditional values, showing how much the church put effort into co-opting this image. The church knew that it was a popular and influential idea, so it didn't want to entirely stamp it out, it just wanted to control it for its own benefit. Okay, enough about the supernatural, let's get back into the nitty gritty. Crime. Gregory tells us a story that, as always, has several interesting messages in it. Apparently, a merchant named Christopher heard that a large quantity of wine had been delivered to Orléans. Hoping to take advantage and make a tidy profit, as merchants tend to do, he went to the city and bought some of the wine, organising for it to be shipped out on boats. But he came to the city himself with the money, which he had borrowed from his father-in-law, on horseback, accompanied by just two of his servants. These two servants were Saxons, meaning that there's a strong likelihood that they were actually slaves. They apparently hated their master, who had had them cruelly whipped multiple times in the past. As they were travelling through an isolated wood, the servants seized their opportunity for revenge. One of them stabbed him with their javelin, knocking him off of his horse. The other then cut his throat before they both fell on him and hacked him to pieces. They stole the money he had been carrying for the wine and fled. Christopher's brother, perhaps wondering why he did not appear, found his body sometime later, or at least what was left of it. He had his brother buried, then sent his own men after the two Saxons. They found the younger one, but the other disappeared with the money, never to be seen again. As they were dragging the younger one back, they failed to properly tie his hands and he got free, killing one of his captors with a javelin, before they were able to once again subdue him. He was then dragged to Tours, where he was tortured, mutilated, and then hung. This story has a few key messages. First, Saxons are very scary, and make terrible servants, and you should never let them anywhere near a javelin. All joking aside, Gregory specifically notes the ethnicity of the servants for a reason. At this time of cultural blending between the Franks and Gallo-Romans, at least in the upper classes, there needed to be things to tie them together. How best to promote a common experience and start building a common culture? Easy. Find an external enemy and just hate them together. This is actually one of the best and oldest nation-building techniques. How do the Scots and the Lowlands and the Scots and the Highlands come together as a nation? Easy, by remembering that whatever their differences, they're not English. How do the mixed English peasantry and Norman upper classes build a shared identity? By remembering, for all their differences, they're not French. Having a convenient other to demonise helps bind people together, and helps keep the lower classes from blaming the upper classes for all of their issues. This practice absolutely continues to this day, 
and the Saxons were the perfect mark for this in Merovingian Gaul. They threatened the livelihoods of everyone with their raiding. They were close, but not too close, and dangerous without being powerful enough to really constitute a threat. They were perfect. In the absence of serious threats from the neighbouring kingdoms, the Saxons became the perfect foil for the Franks and Gallo-Romans, and they would remain so for centuries. Another interesting thing to note is the model of justice that is displayed. See, who gave the merchant's brother the authority to send out his own men to arrest the perpetrators? Apparently, no one. Like we've seen before with Guntramboso and the independent nobles who stalked the land with their private armies, the lack of central control and effective government meant an absence of a government monopoly on the use of force. This immediately erodes the justice system. Want justice for your brother? Well, go get it yourself. Drag the guilty party back to the city to give it a veneer of legitimacy, but this definitely looks much more like revenge than actual justice. Now this might sound like a vigilante paradise for some people out there, but the privatisation of justice carries a lot of drawbacks. First, obviously, the system privileges those who can mobilise men and resources, i.e. the rich. Second, it will have a high failure rate, which will cause things like blood feuds and more violence. Third, it is obviously less effective than a centralised system of experts dispensing justice. It is worth noting that Gaul was not like Lord of the Flies, There were laws around justice and crime. It's just that without a government presence, the people were forced to step in themselves and dole out private justice. The system didn't work because there were no laws, there were plenty. It didn't work because the government didn't enforce the laws themselves effectively, instead relying on the good nature of a variety of local citizens. Dicey proposition, that one. Continuing with our theme of crime and violence in the state, let's move on to our last story. This one happens in Tours itself, and involves Gregory, so it has a lot more detail. It is also a perfect example of how a lack of central authority and a heavily armed populace means that mistakes quickly spiral out of control. It also shows what an absolutely goddamn mess attempts at rudimentary justice could be in this period. We've seen a blood feud develop between elites with Fredegund and Brunhild, but how does it work on a local scale? Let's start at the beginning. A man named Sachar is at a village called Mantelon, where he is friends with the local priest for some Christmas festivities. He is having a good time, indulging with another man named Ostrogasil and some locals. The local priest sends one of his servants around to invite Sachar and some other men to his house for a drink. But when the servant arrives to invite some men, one of them draws his sword and kills the servant. Why? We can't be sure, but it is likely that there was some kind of grudge and the alcohol spurred the men to violence. Hearing that his friend the priest had had one of his servants killed, Sichar decides to take justice into his own hands. Also likely spurred on by alcohol, 
he rounds up some men and lies in wait at the church for Ostrogasol. Again, we can't be sure why he blamed Ostrogasol, but likely Ostrogasol was either connected to the murder in some way, or that he was the local noble and Sachar held him personally responsible. Unfortunately, Ostrogasol heard of Sachar's plan and armed himself and his followers, heading out to take on Sachar. A full-on battle ensues in the streets of the village, but some people quickly begin slipping away. Sachar's forces disintegrate, and he is spirited out of the area by some friendly local clerics. He escapes to his country estate. While he is safe, he leaves behind four of his wounded servants, some gold and silver, and some of his personal belongings in the house of the priest. Ostrogasil storms this house, killing the four servants and stealing all the money and all of Sachar's belongings. When morning comes and the madness of the previous night wears off, the levers of justice finally intervene. A local tribunal of citizens convenes and condemns Ostrogasil for killing the four servants and stealing Sachar's property. This traditional community tribunal shows that the old forms of justice were still present and functioning to some degree outside of the urban centres. But Sachar is angry, and doesn't seem to have taken comfort in the tribunal siding with him. He finds out that a man named Auno now has the things that Ostrogasil stole from him. Again, Gregory does not detail it for us, but they must have been either sold by Ostrogasil to Alno, or Alno was one of Ostrogasil's friends and was helping him out. Whatever the case, Sachar, who in Gregory's words, quote, dismissed the tribunal from his mind as if it had never been, end quote, again rounded up some men. They broke into Alno's house in the middle of the night, murdered him, his brother, one of his sons, and all of his servants, and then stole everything they could, including all of his herds. This is where Gregory steps in. He hears of these crimes and is determined to put an end to the cycle of violence. He collars a local judge and calls all of the wronged parties together. He begs them to stop killing one another, lamenting the loss of so many sons of the church. He asks them to keep the peace and pay any fines needed to settle the matter. He even offers to use church money to pay the fines if they lack the capacity, if only to ensure that each party is compensated according to the law so that the matter can be resolved. Now, you know your feud has gone too far when Gregory, one of the most powerful men in the kingdoms, personally intervenes. But this is a fascinating example of the care that Gregory took in the personal matters of his city. Here we can see him acting in a role that we would normally associate with the noble of the city, helping us understand better the extent to which he really was a threat to the counts who tried to rule Tur while the influential bishop was alive. Gregory's intervention nearly solves the conflict, as Sichar agrees to travel to see the king. But Cromnesund, son of Aono, refused to accept the peace, and hungered for revenge on Sachar, who had murdered his father, brother, and uncle in cold blood. As Sachar was travelling to see the king, he stopped in Poitiers to see his wife. 
While there on his property, he was abusing one of his slaves for being lax, beating the man with a stick. The slave somehow managed to take Sachar's sword from his belt and stabbed the man. Sachar fell to the ground as his friends rushed in. They beat the slave before cutting off his hands and feet and hanging him for good measure. Kramnesund, back in Tur, heard the news that Sachar had been killed by one of his slaves. He immediately rushed with some friends and relations to Sachar's house, where he killed a few servants, stole everything including the herds, and then burned it down. In fact, apparently unsatisfied with these acts of revenge, he even burned down all of Sachar's neighbours' houses as well. Unfortunately for Kramnesund, Sachar had not died. He had merely been wounded, and soon returned to find his estate gutted and his servants dead. It was at this point that finally all of the parties saw the cycle that they were caught in, and agreed to respect the word of the local judge. The judge decided that the only way to ensure the peace was to allow Kramnesund to keep half of the compensation he had previously been awarded, with the other half returning to Sachar for his losses. Gregory notes that this was against the law, but was necessary. He even fronted the money for Sachar out of the church coffers, making good on his promise to solve the conflict with church money if needed. They ensured all of the money was paid, and all of the parties finally took an oath to end the feud. This story perfectly encapsulates how buck-wild feuds could develop out of basically nothing. In essence, one drunken local murder resulted in dozens of deaths, massive economic damage to several families, and Gregory's personal intervention. It is important to note that these stories were not everyday occurrences. Gregory is telling us about exceptional events across many years. But the way they spiral out of control, and the details, reveal a lot of interesting things. So, what have we learned about life in Merovingian Gaul? Well, we know that magic and the supernatural were not only much more common and widely believed, we also know that the church was determined to enforce their control over all things of this nature. We know that you should never trust a Saxon with a javelin, and also that justice was most reliable when you were rich enough to do it yourself. We also know that even the rich need to be careful about how they dole out this justice, as they can quickly find themselves in dangerous and costly feuds. All of these stories reveal a lot about what life was like in a place with little central government presence, how people adapted to keep things functioning more or less, and how flawed and problematic these hotfixes were in reality. Next week, we're going to take a look at the beginning of Book 8 of Gregory's Histories, where Guntram visits Orléans for the Feast of St. Martin. Gregory was there, so we'll go through the days he spent in the area and all that occurred. Sounds boring, but I promise, a minute look at a few days in the life of the king is actually very dramatic. We've been looking at sweeping events that unfold over long periods, so slowing down and looking at a few days in detail will be an interesting contrast. See you then.